Startup exits are the most sought after events in Silicon Valley, but very few people get to experience them. Welcome to the Startup Exits podcast, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. Hey, everybody, this is your host, Andrew Vasilik, and you're listening to Startup Exits. And today I'm joined by Tim Gill. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. So you created a startup before the word startup itself even existed. Uh, you founded your first company, Quark, in 1981. Uh, you guys created the world's most popular enterprise publishing software. Uh, you ended up, selling, ended up selling all of your shares in Quark uh, for half a billion in 2000. So a very, very positive outcome by any means. Uh, at one point, you were one of the wealthiest 400 people in America, and you're also the largest single individual donor to the LGBT rights movement in U.S. history. Uh, so a very incredible career. Uh, but first, let's start with Quark. Um, was Quark your first company, or have you started anything prior to that? Quark was the first company I started. I had worked for a number of startups before, and uh, part of what happened was every time I worked for those startups, they, there was some problem. So one of them, the president ran off with all the money and the secretary, another one they went business. And so kind of starting Quark was my solution to not having those issues. And how did you come up with the idea? Like how, how did you guys get started? So the first product we produced was actually not the desktop publishing program. It was a word processor for a computer you've probably never heard of called the Apple III. Um, and Apple only ever made 120,000 of them. But since we were the only uh, word processor for the Apple III, we had a captive market. And so that allowed us to get to like around $5 million-ish in sales a year. And that was uh, really quite a good start for us. Mm -hmm. So you, um, the first product that you guys released was a word processor. And uh, you guys got started uh, with a $2,000 loan from your parents. Uh, how long did it take from the idea of we're going to start a word processor to actually launching that first product? So that was like two months, maybe three months. Um, I mean, a word processor, especially back in the old uh, days before you had graphics displays was a comparatively easy thing to do. So it was pretty quick. And actually for the Apple III, they had no documentation on how to write software for it. And so I had to reverse engineer the operating system, build an op actually it was reverse engineering the ROM, build an operating system on top of that, and then build uh, the word processor on top of that. So it was a pretty intense three months. And when, uh, so you guys launched the, the first products, the word processor, did you guys maintain uh, in the direction of word processing? Or I guess, when did the switch happen to, um, to, uh, to, a, word, to a publisher, publishing software? So actually what happened was the first thing we did was we switched from the Apple III because it was kind of a dead end to the Apple IIe when it came out. And there, there was a whole collection of word processors that already had good market share. And so we entered that and it was a much, much larger market. We probably, I think, ended up being the number three word processor in that market. So it did better than $5 million in sales, but certainly there were other problems 
were processes that were doing better. And from there, actually, we were going to do a word processor for product that you may also never have heard of called the Apple II GS. And the Apple II GS was supposed to be the next generation Apple II. They did, in fact, ship it, but it was kind of killed fairly early on because of the Mac emphasis. Anyway, we started developing actually on the Macintosh so we could write in C. And by the time they got their C compiler out for the 2GS, we had built something that was more than a word processor. It was a desktop publisher and it ran on Mac. And when you guys launched Quark Express, uh, and that's your flagship product at that time that uh, just was, it was a wild success. It held over 90% of the market. Uh, did you guys get the product right from the get-go? Oh, absolutely not. It was um, kind of all the 1.x series were not particularly good. And then right around version 2.1, we had a product that people actually started to like. And then the thing that really took, us, took off completely was when we released um, version 3 of Quark Express, because for the first time it had things like rotating text and all sorts of other things that no one else had. Mm -hmm. And when you guys, um, I, so I, nowadays there is the, the lean method, right? The, the process of launching, getting feedback, launching, getting feedback. And this feedback loop is not that long. I mean, especially if you're building websites, if you're building apps, you can really launch like even every couple of days if you want to. Uh, how long was this feedback loop for you guys back then? So by the time we had an installed base, um, you know, the, the differences are when you have, in the old days, of course, you would ship people things on diskettes. Later on, you would ship them on CD-ROMs or DVDs. Um, but the cost of me doing an upgrade, the actual physical cost to me was, by the time we got done, about a million dollars because you had to make so many diskettes and manuals and all those other things. Um, so the lead time was fairly long. So we would typically do a major release every 18 months or so, um, you know, with a lot of beta in between. But yeah, it was, it's completely different now. And you're absolutely right. We can fix a bug within minutes when we find it now. And before, if we did a major release and there was a bug fix that was critical, then the cost was a million dollars to get it out to all the customers. How often would you guys push updates? Um, so like I said, the major updates were every 12 to 18 months. And we always assumed after a major update that there would be one bug fix release of some kind. So the other difference I think is that we had a huge QA department exactly to avoid those costs. Um, and today you can get away with a smaller QA department because you can turn things so cheaply and so fast. And besides just pushing updates, um, Nowadays, you have very sophisticated analytics uh, platforms where you can know exactly what a user is doing. You get a bunch of different metrics based off of which you can uh, make future product decisions. Uh, what were some of the kind of analytic, uh, analytical data that you guys had at that time? Um, analytics were very, very minimal. Um, because when we started, the web as a commercial thing didn't exist at all. I mean, it existed in, in research establishments, but that was it. And so we really just relied on what feedback users physically gave us by calling. And we did 
the whole tech support part of Quark, which was one of the parts that I ran, um, was very, very good about keeping track of all the bugs, all the feature requests. Um, and that's kind of how we guided ourselves that. And then, of course, what the competition was doing. A couple of years after you guys got started, uh, Fred Abrahimi joined and he eventually became the CEO of the company. Uh, what made you guys want to bring in an external CEO? Um, yeah, so it was originally me and my boyfriend that did it. Um, and Mark was really great for a small company. He was super good at controlling costs and getting good deals on products. Um, and then the problem with him was that when we got to a certain level in sales, and that level in sales was somewhere around five to seven million dollars, he would get panicked that we could lose everything. And so he would do things that essentially leveled off our growth. And so in the end, uh, what happened was I said, you know, I'm happy. We have to do one of two things because I really can't work with you anymore. I can give you the company and be done with it, or we can arrange to have you bought out. And his degree was in architecture. And so he said, yeah, arrange to have me bought out. And so what we did is we brought Fred in and Fred bought an equal number of shares from both of us so that the company was a third, a third, a third. And then over time, the company bought back Mark's third so that it was just me and Fred having 50% of the company each. So Mark left, and a couple of years after he left, uh, in the year 2000, you left as well. So you sold uh, your share of the company for half a billion. And I want to emphasize that this is not an acquisition of the company, right? So the, you, you did not sell a company that was worth half a billion. You cashed out a half a billion. Uh, so call, calling this a life-changing amount of money, I think, would be an understatement. Besides <laughs> the kind of the financial side of things, what made you want to leave? Um, I had been working at Quark, I think, for 19 years at that point. And my business partner, Fred, wanted to do something very different than what I wanted to do. I wanted to kind of keep working in the markets we were in, and he wanted to get into new markets. And in particular, he was very interested in providing systems to people that did accounting and metrics in the publishing industry. Um, and I put myself through college doing accounting software. And I love numbers, my degrees in mathematics, but I do not love numbers when they represent dollar figures. Um, the problems I think aren't as interesting, at least to me personally. And so we were actually at Fred's house having drinks and talking about what we were gonna do. And I said, well, you know, you could buy me out. And so we talked about that for a little while and we came up with a price and um, some of it was cash fairly immediately and some of it was cash paid out over time, but it worked out really quite well. And if you remember, so the time that that happened was 2000 and that was like immediately before the tech crash. And so Fred had a ton of stocks that were in high tech companies and he actually sold them all, not all of them, but a lot of them in order to, to pay me off. And he sold them kind of at the peak just before the crash. So he won and I won. It was perfect. Yeah, it looked like it was a win-win. Um, so when you guys 
negotiate. I, I guess the the price per share was a matter of negotiation. Like you guys didn't raise capital before then, so you don't have like a VC backed um, valuation. So was there any sort of kind of third party that came in and said, okay, the, the value of the company could be worth this, therefore the shares of the co- did, did you guys have an idea of what the company was worth at that time? Or was it just purely, you know, n- 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 a matter of negotiations? No, it was, I mean, if negotiations take five minutes, then yes, it was a matter of negotiations, but it was really pretty much that quick. It was five or 10 minutes worth of discussion. Um, the thing is, so Quark was selling so anywhere between 300 and 330-ish million dollars worth of stuff a year with a 60% pre-tax profit margin. So we thought of the value more in terms of uh, the cash flow and not in terms of how you would think of it for a company that was on the public market. And so Fred just thought of it in terms of what percentage of the cash flow would this acquisition consume? Um, And a half a billion dollars in the end is what it worked out to. You mentioned that part of the cash was upfront and the other uh, part was over time. Um, was it like mostly upfront or like how much was it upfront and how much was it over time? Oh, it was mostly upfront. Okay. And when I use that half, half billion dollar figure, that includes, that's like essentially my total take from the company. So it includes the bonuses that we had up to the point of sale. It includes the sale amount. It includes, um, some of my shares had been given to family members, and so it includes all of that. So it's not like it all personally went to me. And about of the stuff that did go to me, about 60% of that ended up going to the Gill Foundation um, for doing philanthropic things. And a lot of the payout over time was associated with the Gill Foundation because it was, from a tax point of view, a cheaper way to uh, transfer the money. Yes, I mean, that's, that's an insane amount of money. And uh, I got to ask, like, when that first check, hit the bank account. What was the first thing that you did or, or bought? <laughs> you know, um, it's funny. I don't think, because I mean, we had been having distributions of multiple millions of dollars a year. So it's not like I really all of a sudden needed to buy some big fancy thing. So I don't think I did anything. I probably... Um, did you give back the $2,000 loan? Oh, the $2,000 loan I paid back within about two weeks. Okay. (laughs) Um, And then when we set up the European operation, the way that we did that um, is I sold a portion of the European operation to my parents and my sisters and so on for like 50 bucks a piece or something because it had no value at the point we set it up. Um, But they ended up getting essentially 10% 10 of that was something that went to my family. You started another company just a couple of years ago in 2015. Uh, the company is called Josh.ai. Uh, it is a voice controlled uh, artificial intelligence home automation system. And I feel like you have a very interesting perspective because you started a company, um, Quark 1980s, and then mm-hmm. uh, Josh is now 2015. So almost 40 years apart. And you, um, I, I wonder, I, I want to ask a couple of questions about how different are things uh, between what it was then and what it is now when it comes to starting companies. Uh, what was the startup environment back in the day, back in the 80s like? Um, so I didn't know any other startups. Well, I guess I did. The, um, 
I started Quark because I was fired from this company, which was composed of people I went to high school with because they ran out of money and it was either me or one of their board of directors. And so that was my only exposure to startups. So for me, it was like starting up in my bedroom. It was sending letters to dealers because at the time, most computers were purchased through local dealers. And uh, that was kind of the marketing mechanism and then using some ads in, in uh, magazines. And of course, today, there is no point in sending letters to dealers because computer dealers don't exist in that way anymore. And you don't necessarily advertise the same way. And so it's very different now. And what was the financial environment like? Like, were there any VC firms? Were, were companies raising capital or were startups, I guess, raising capital at those times? I would actually, ha- I'm sure there were, but I have no idea because I didn't use them. Uh, my friends had started uh, their company just, you know, with whatever money they had in their bank account. And so I essentially did the same. And the costs back then were lower. The development time for that class of product was lower. So it was something that you could do. And now uh, that you have a success under your belt with Quark and you're running Josh, um, how uh, you, you guys are raising capital right now? Like, how do you find it much easier to raise capital because of the, the previous success? Or what's, what's your experience with raising capital uh, at Josh? That whole process has really just started for us. Um, and I think it gives you a, a level of credibility because people. A, we have a product that people can see and touch and play with. And B, they see that there's somebody who knows how to actually run a company and that understands accounting and metrics. And, you know, my company was different. The company I started was different in that it actually made money and Mm -hmm. it didn't have any venture financing. Um, And that's kind of in the end, what you want is you want a company that can make a profit and grow and those are the things that really vcs are looking for and those are skills that i developed in the process of running quark the skill i didn't develop was asking for money so that's a skill i'm just learning so you didn't raise money for quark and you guys are now raising money for josh do you feel like raising capital uh is a necessity for startup or uh can can startups avoid it um i think you should avoid it as long as you can we got to four years with um, personal investments from me. And so the longer you can avoid that, I think the, the more dilution um, you can avoid. And that's probably a good thing most of the time. But I think in the end, especially if your um, exit is based on either an acquisition or an IPO, that having people with skills in that is something that is terribly useful and it is worth it to have them on your side when you're pursuing those exits when um your your first office at quark was uh your apartment and you had about a dozen people working there Uh, so obviously it's a very frugal option and maybe part of the reason is because you guys didn't raise a huge um, vc round like startups do nowadays uh, where they have very flashy offices. And I think on one hand, startups that do raise huge rounds and have very nice offices, on one hand, it may seem like it's a waste of money. Uh, but on another hand, it's definitely helpful in some areas. Uh, for example, like attracting top talent. 
what advice would you give to startups about how they should spend money? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's really easy to spend money inappropriately and it's tempting. I mean, you could, and maybe we're all programmed to do it because we see super duper flashy offices and you don't need something that's that flashy. I mean, people should be coming to your company because you provide good benefits, you provide good salary, you provide a good working environment, you know, and the fact that you don't have a 24 uh, seven champagne fountain in the lobby is really not something that should matter. What are some of the things that startups can do to lower their burn rate? I think there's a couple things. One is you need to have an appropriate employee incentive program. And granted, you know, nobody can live on stock options. You have to have, have a salary, but you have to sweeten that with clever stock options. And then I think the other thing is that you really don't need the flashy office. You don't need to travel first class. Um, you know, if you want to use miles to travel first class, that's fine, but not, you shouldn't do that on the company's dime. Um, and there are cases where advertising is part of the process for making a name for yourself, but at least for the companies I worked, worked in, that's always been a tiny, tiny percentage of our total spend because it's really about getting people to talk about your product, getting people to recommend your product, and that is actually a far more effective use of your time and money than doing advertising and certain other kinds of marketing activities. Yeah, and I think for you guys at Quark, uh, you, you, your customers essentially, at least in the early days, were, uh, were your sales force. You, they loved the product, the word of mouth worked very well. Uh, when they, on the topic of customer acquisition, um, you guys obviously sold uh, products for the enterprises. When you are a small, unknown startup, how do you even get a foot in the door with these huge enterprise clients? Yeah, I mean, for us, it happened because the product we were selling was so much radically cheaper than the technologies they were using. And it didn't always do everything that the technologies did. And so, for example, we sold Quark Express to Time Mac to the New York Times very early. But it was probably like five or six years before they actually used it. Um, and that was not necessarily the case. So, for example, the Condé Nast publications were, were much quicker adopters. Um, and so you just have to find the customers that are willing to buy you and push you and accept that there's some others that are going to be laggards. And, and that's perfectly okay because you need sales then, too. And at the time when you left Quark in, in the year 2000, you guys had about 300 employees, um, and I believe in seven countries. Yeah, I think 300 employees in the U.S. I think actually we peaked around, um, and they may have actually peaked after I left, somewhere over 1,000 employees because we had a large operation in India. We had an operation in Singapore, um, operations in a variety of European countries, our biggest operation other than India was in uh, Ireland, actually. What was it like to manage, manage a remote team in um, pretty much 20 years ago? Because nowadays we have all sorts of different um, tools and uh, conferencing software, which ironically we, we had trouble setting up before the call. Uh, but in most cases they work. And in a lot of cases they can make you feel like 
you're working with somebody who's you know thousands of kilometers away uh, make you feel like they're they're in the same room working together with you how different was it in in those times so actually it meant you got on a plane right and and every month i would spend about a week in our main office in germany at the time um, working on their technology with them so that was actually one of the things that kind of drove me the most nuts about that whole thing was that i ended up spending my time on planes critiquing other people's software rather than writing my own and my sense of identity comes from writing software always and still and so that was one of the reasons that when fred and i were talking about an exit i thought if i can get out of this that would be really nice so i can snowboard for a while and then you know a few years later start another company so you did start another company and uh what so essentially it's almost a yeah i guess it is a 15 year um, break between when you left quark and uh when you started josh ai uh what made you want to get into home automation so i had always literally always since high school been working on things where i could talk to the computer because back then you typed to the computer and it typed back um but i had done like four or five versions of that and then i was getting a house and the technologies were there that actually allowed you to talk and allowed it to talk back and i thought well you know i should just make something so I can talk to the house because what boy doesn't want to talk to their house, right? Every single science fiction book that talks about the future of humanity has you talking to your spaceship or your house or whatever. And that was just, we had reached a point where that was possible and it was practical. And so that's what I started to do. And I was doing that on my own for a couple of years. But really, to do a good job, there are so many things you have to control. There are so many things you have to set up that it required more than just me. And so that was kind of when I started talking to Alex, my business partner, about working together to actually make this more than just a product for my house. It was a product for other people's houses. And Alex was setting up a big house at the same time. And he was kind of frustrated with the technology as well. So we decided that we would make a good technology to do it. And Josh, it's a quite a high-end product. Um, I believe the cost is, in, is somewhere in the tens of thousands, uh, somewhere north of 10,000, sorry. Uh, do you guys have any plans of releasing more affordable options? No, actually, it's less than that. So the original version that we shipped was, was $10,000, but we shipped a version called Josh Micro a while back, and it's still in the high end, right? It's not like an Alexa where you can go out and buy one for 25 bucks on sale. Um, it, but you can get a very basic system in a house for $1,000, um, and that's a professionally installed system. So it provides a lot more sophistication than what you get with kind of off-the-shelf DIY products. You know, and for example, my dad or my mom would never be able to set stuff up in their house to let them control it, but they still would benefit from it. And so the idea that there are people that are out there that can install something and make it work um, without everyone having to be a technologist is a really great way to sell stuff. 
So at that price point, uh, I would imagine that the product is not meant for the masses. Uh, besides cost, how do you, what sort of things do you feel like need to be done uh, from home automation to, to truly um, hit the masses? Um, so, I mean, you can do a limited amount of automation with products like uh, Amazon Echo. It's just once you get into a multi-room situation, once you have AV systems that are distributed, um, very complicated audio setups, then those kinds of systems start to fall apart. And so really what you need is, if you look at the traditional systems for doing this, and there's like three main companies that do that, it's called, they're called Crestron, um, Savant, and Control4. Their costs are higher. Um, the installation time is higher and the technical level is higher. And so what we want to do is find a way over time to make the process of installing these things simpler and simpler and simpler. And my original theory when I got into this business, because we all heard the hype around the Internet of Things, was that every device was going to be connected. It was going to have an open API and it was going to be clever. And so I thought this will be a piece of cake. And it turns out that kind of none of those things are true. So it's a difficult problem to solve to integrate with all those devices. But when you do, the experience can be magical. I think some of the barriers to entry from, uh, f from some people's point of view uh, in really building high-tech homes um, is the fact that tech changes very rapidly, right? So if you're like really pimping out your house with tech, and you have like speakers, I don't know, everywhere and all sorts of different setups. If let's say a couple of years go by and the technology changes, then um, you essentially have to rip the whole house apart, fix the, replace those things and then put it back together. So um, what do you respond to that? Like how, how do you kind of overcome this issue that uh, unlike an iPhone where, you know, a new iPhone comes out every year, you can throw out your old one. It's not, you know, that big of a deal. You can't throw away a house. So. Right. What sort of advances do you think are going to happen to, to kind of tackle this issue? So there, there are technologies that don't change that quickly. And so in, say, the lighting realm, um, lighting, shades, those kinds of things, there's a company called Lutron. They've been around forever. Their technology has progressed, um, but it's done in a way that doesn't essentially obsolete the old stuff. And you can keep the same lighting and shades forever. And that's actually one of the bigger, more expensive parts of an automated home, other than whatever kind of theater you have. The theater, on the other hand, especially the um, video stuff, changes fairly quickly. And so for that, you just have to decide, you know, you can't afford literally to get every rev of every new AV system. So you just want to say, you know, I'll do a refresh every however many years you're comfortable with, depending on what your budget looks like. How many years away would you say that uh, we are from a truly um, smart home reality for the masses? Uh, you know, like, do you think I this think is something like in, in the distant future or you know, we're almost there? I, I think it's, it's not going to be like some magical point in time that 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 happens. But what you see happening is people who are doing um, MDUs, multiple dwelling units, so like condos, is they're pre-wiring some of those 
with this tech. And so for new units, it's going to become more and more and more prevalent. But the retrofit market, um, that's going to take a long time. There are houses you know, that are, were built 50 years ago, 60 years ago, that uh, putting any tech in is really difficult. And my last question to you, Tim, is um, what do you think uh, does the future of smart homes or home automation or artificial intelligence in home look like in general? Um, I mean, we always have thought that, you know, one of the, the preeminent features of Josh is that you could control the house by voice. But, you know, that doesn't get rid of switches. It doesn't get rid of remotes. Um, I think the future is that all those things are integrated together. I think the idea that the way you talk to your house is with a puck that sits there on your desktop is going to go away. It's not, um, it's just not ideally good looking. You really kind of want the whole voice experience built into the house in a way that's not visible at all. You should just be able to go into a room and talk and the system should figure it out and you shouldn't have to have some clearly present device that you talk at. Tim, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and share it with your friends. Also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. To learn more, visit startupsoft.org.